Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. Well, Greg, opinions continue to trickle out of the Supreme Court, with the justices issuing three opinions on Thursday, June 1st, bringing the total number of remaining cases to 27. And one of those rulings we just got is a labor case. It's known as Glacier Northwest, in which Justice Jackson was the lone dissenter. Uh, she was the only justice to vote in favor of the union in a, a rather technical case about who should hear th- this dispute. Uh, Kimberly, that's kind of unusual for a new justice, right, to dissent on on her own in, in a new term? It sure is, Greg. And so a uh, friend of the podcast, Adam Feldman, who I've mentioned several times, but um, I love all the stats that he throws out. He noted on Twitter that since Justice Thomas joined the court in 1991, only one other justice has penned a solo dissent in their first term. So, Greg... Uh, Want to take any guesses at who that is? No, I don't, because I'm going to look silly when I get it totally wrong. <laughs> but since you want me to, I will say <laughs> probably a, a maverick justice like Neil Gorsuch. Um, sorry, you were close. You were close. And I sort of um, threw you off by mentioning Justice Thomas, but it was Justice Thomas in 1991. Anywho, well... You know, Greg, I had a couple of things uh, to note about Justice Jackson's dissent. Uh, I think one thing is that it's sort of more evidence we have that she's going to be a really strong voice on the court. You know, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about, you know, during oral arguments, she's spoken more, way more than any other justice so far. Um, And, you know, over the the term, she's parted ways a couple of times with the other liberal justices, Sotomayor and Kagan. But I think another thing about this dissent um, that sort of is more evidence of her strong voice is that the majority and the two concurrences here were 18 pages and Justice Jackson's solo dissent was 27, (laughs) 27 pages. So uh, she's got a lot to say and she's going to tell us about it. Greg, one more thing I wanted to say about the opinion as a whole and Justice Jackson's dissent is as a reporter, I really, really like Justice Barrett's style. Um, so like you see, she's the one who wrote the majority opinion here and you look at her first paragraph and you totally know what's going on. She tells you like what the, what the outcome of the case is going to be. You're like a good spot to start like reporting on this case. Um, Justice Jackson, on the other hand, starts her dissent like this. The right to strike is fundamental to American labor law. So (laughs) you have no clue what's going on. I think you find out like several pages in. Um, you know, where she's going with this. I mean, I think other people might like the flourish, but as a as a reporter, I really appreciate sort of the more straightforwardness of Justice Barrett's writing. I hear you. It's always good to understand up top uh, what what's at stake. Right. So, Greg, you covered uh, one of the other cases that the justices handed down on Thursday. This one was a unanimous securities ruling that the justices handed down on Thursday, making it more difficult for companies to be sued for securities fraud in certain cases. Uh, That opinion was also pretty straightforward. Um, And so was the opinion announcement by Justice Gorsuch, maybe a little uh, a little too straightforward. Right. He certainly had me scrambling. Yeah, well, uh, maybe at least too short. Um, so, so first I should say, you know, the, the opinion is actually a little bit technical and I, you know, listeners who want to know more, you can either check out the opinion or the story that I, I wrote about it. But yeah, one thing, you know, now that they're back to issuing opinions on the bench, we're back to a world where one opinion comes out, the, the justice who wrote it 
reads a summary from the bench. Occasionally, we haven't had it yet this term, a justice might read a summary of his or her dissent from the bench. But the, the amount of time between opinions depends on how long those, those readings take. And there are a couple justices, uh, Justice Alito very much seems to not enjoy the uh, bench announcements, makes his very short. And Justice Gorsuch sometimes makes his very short, especially in a, an opinion like this that was only 10 pages long. And for those of us in the press room, what it means is, hey, you got to be ready for that next opinion coming quickly because uh, that, that next opinion could be a big one. So let's move on. The last case the justices decided this week, another unanimous ruling uh, letting whistleblowers bring fraud suits on the government's behalf. If you're a fan of the False Claims Act and Sienta requirements, check it out. But we thought we'd take a look at what's still left for the justices to decide over the next month. Right. And there's a lot. Um, so I mentioned at the top, we've got 27 cases, and some of those are blockbuster cases, right? So the longest outstanding case as of uh, today is Allen versus Milligan, the voting rights case that was argued in October. And it sure seems like we're going to get an opinion from the court that further narrows Section 2 of the act. Do you agree with that, Greg? Yeah, and and I think I would certainly would have said that you know even before they they heard arguments in the case. So to remind people, Section Two is now the main part of the Voting Rights Act. It lets people uh, sue to challenge either voting districts or or voting rules as being discriminatory uh, on the basis of race, as as typically discriminating against minority voters. Uh, the court has already undercut a, a, a another very big part of, of the Voting Rights Act. That was, it's called Section 5. That's the part that required many states to get federal clearance before they changed their voting rules. So, so right now, Section 2 is the, the the core of the Voting Rights Act. So one thing that's interesting about that, so this, as you said, was argued in the, in the October sitting uh, early on. Usually what happens with each sitting is the chief justice or, or whoever is assigning the opinions in a particular case tries to make sure that every justice has a majority opinion to write, and certainly in that first sitting. Problem is, in that first sitting this year, there were only eight cases, and of course, there are nine justices. So what we have is, that's the only case undecided. There are now two justices who have not written an opinion. One of them is John Roberts, and the other is Clarence Thomas. Both of those uh, probably do not bode well for for the advocates who are arguing for the creation of a second majority black district in Alabama in this case. That said, there could be pretty big differences depending on which of those two justices writes the case. So uh, Justice Thomas has essentially said this whole theory that they're pressing here, this vote dilution theory under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, he says the Voting Rights Act doesn't actually cover that. This is not the kind of thing that judges should be getting involved in. So he has written that he would actually not not consider these sorts of claims at all. Now, I'm not saying he's going to do that if he writes the majority opinion here, but but you know you can imagine a a very big opinion if he writes it, or at least he'll try to make it big. John Roberts, on the other hand, actually in this case, there was a stay application, and the stay application determined whether or not there was going to be a second majority black district for the most recent election. And John Roberts, the court issued that stay, and uh, that meant there was not going to be a, a district. But John Roberts dissented, and he said, I would have let that that district be created for this election. I do think we need to take up this case because our, our rules are a mess for, for evaluating these sorts of things. There's a lot of confusion out there. 
So, you know, that, that, you know, suggests that maybe he, you know, might be looking at some sort of, uh, of more narrow decision if indeed he's the one writing it. So it's a little more difficult to read the tea leaves for the November sitting, which has um, some big cases in it, including the affirmative action cases. Uh, I think it's a little more challenging because those are kind of two cases that were consolidated and then unconsolidated when Justice Jackson joined the court because she needed to recuse from one. So unclear if we're going to get one opinion or two opinions, but there's there's also just more cases outstanding from that from that sitting. Um, what is there any tea leaf reading we can do? We, we could try, but as you said, we have probably fewer clues. So as you indicated, only three opinions from that sitting. We've only had three opinions. That's actually interestingly fewer than what we have from the April sitting, which you know just finished ten minutes ago. <laughs> um, it, yes. <laughs> so. I, I mean, one thing, you know, there's probably a link between who is writing the Voting Rights Act case and who is writing the affirmative action uh, decisions. If the chief justice made a decision not to give himself an opinion in the October sitting, so if he's not writing the Voting Rights Act case, boy, it sure seems likely that he's writing the the at least the main opinion in the affirmative action case. A, a, as you indicated, there could be two cases and there could well be two opinions that come out. Now, it's it's especially complicated because, as you said, Justice Jackson's not taking part in the in, in the Harvard case. In this case, I'm not sure it matters quite as much who's writing it. I could be wrong here, but, uh, you know, the chief justice has racial... Um, neutrality, as as he sees it, a colorblind constitution has been a big part of his, it's been a big campaign of his since he joined the court. Yeah, I mean, it's what's the line from parents involved? It's uh, you can't, the best way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. So, um, yeah, I think that sums up uh, the chief justice's view on on things like this, both the Voting Rights Act cases and uh, affirmative action. E- either way, I think you know uh, proponents of affirmative action are are very much bracing themselves for a decision that, at a minimum, will shortly curtail the ability of universities to use race, if not abolish it altogether. So, one thing I think that also sort of makes it more difficult to figure out who's writing for the November sitting is that the justices also heard in that sitting. Um, the Indian Child Welfare Act case, which sort of has some of these same themes, right? This idea that um, the Constitution should be colorblind. And so uh, that's one of the ways in which the challengers of this federal statute are saying that um, it violates equal protection because it, it you know, just it sort of distinguishes between Native Americans and all other people um, with regard to adoption. But I sort of wonder, I mean, there's a way for the court not to get into that issue in the Indian Child Welfare Act case. But, you know, again, it, it seems like a, 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 you know, an attractive assignment for somebody who wants to see their view of a colorblind constitution sort of come to fruition. Yeah, a- absolutely. And in general, you would expect the big cases like that more likely than not, will go to one of the more senior justices. So if not the chief, then Justice Thomas, Justice Alito. Uh, wor- worth noting, in that term, uh, Justice Gorsuch has already written a majority opinion 
Uh, doesn't absolutely mean he's not writing the, the Indian uh, Child Welfare Act case, but probably makes him uh, you know, less likely. Yeah, that's a that's uh, that's a good point because Justice Gorsuch uh, has really been since he joined the court has really been a friend of Native American tribes, and uh, even when he was on the Tenth Circuit, you know, I remember when he was nominated to the Supreme Court, he got backing by a lot of the tribes. So, um, yeah, another sort of indication of what might be coming in the Indian Child Welfare Act case too. Uh, one more case maybe that we should talk about, and um, I'd love to uh, know what you think is going to happen here because I certainly have no clue at this point, but is uh, Moore versus Harper. We've talked about this case a couple of times on this podcast. This is the case um, about who gets to decide uh, what voting rules apply to federal elections. Is it only the state legislature? Is there a role for courts to play? What about you know the executive or agencies? Um And then, of course, as we discussed on the podcast, there was sort of a hiccup um, in that the North Carolina Supreme Court uh, had elections. And for some reason, once the uh, once the court flipped from majority Democrats on the on the court to majority Republicans, the opinion of the court changed. Odd how that happened, really. Yeah. And so there have now been um, a massive amount of briefs filed at the U.S. Supreme Court's request about what all that means, whether the Supreme Court still has uh, jurisdiction, whether the dispute is is moot. And I, it's hard to say. I mean, several justices have expressed very much a desire to resolve this question outside the context of an immediate election dispute. There's clearly uh, movement on the court to, to want to resolve this thing sooner rather than later. But what we have in North Carolina now is essentially a fight with next to no practical stakes in that state. It does not, you know, the, the Republicans in that state are going to be able to, the, the Republican-led legislature is going to be able to draw its own district without being subject to this provision of the North Carolina Constitution that that this whole fight was about. So the question is, is the Supreme Court going to say, oh, we're going to dismiss this as moot, dismiss it as, as improvidently granted, something like that, in which case we then look at this other pending case that has similar issues out of Ohio, or are they going to somehow say, nope, we still have a role here, we're going to rule, and, and if so, then what do they do? Um, the, the argument suggested that the court was not as interested as perhaps some had feared in a big sweeping ruling that would say state courts have no roles in federal elections. It's all about uh, what the legislature does. It's even possible that the court will say the North Carolina Supreme Court was had it right all along, or at least had the power to be to, to say what it said uh, under the U.S. Constitution. It is increasingly looking like uh, we're all going to have to think about a dizzying array of possibilities for exactly how this case might come out. Um, it, it, you know, if if they were going to dismiss it, uh, maybe it's possible they'll still dismiss it and somebody's writing a long opinion about why they shouldn't have d- dismissed it. But, um, you know, with, with each passing day, the, the possibilities grow. Right. Because we can't, you know, you can contrast that with the Title 42 case that the court dismissed really quickly after the federal government um, solved the emergency relating to the pandemic. Um, but it has not acted so quickly in this case. So. 
who knows what to make about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what one could very easily argue that the the stakes, the stakes, the legal issue in the Title 42 case, which is all about whether states could intervene in the fight, were much, much, much smaller than the illegal stakes with the independent state legislature theory. All right. Well, Greg, I think that was a good attempt at trying to figure out what's going on in these cases, though I don't think we came to many conclusions on Moore versus Harper. Uh, but the justices will issue more opinions Thursday, June 8th, though. Um, seems unlikely to me that we're going to get any of the cases that we just talked about. One thing I do expect to see change are some of the stats that's emerged from the term so far. So of the 30 cases that have come down so far, 19 have been unanimous. And I suspect that probably won't hold as we get more of these contentious decisions. I'd also expect another stat to change. Um, More trivia for you, Greg. Any guesses as to which justice has been in the majority the most so far this term? I've seen this, and it's not who you think it's going to be. It's, I think it's Sotomayor. It is Sotomayor. Justice Sotomayor. Yes. Uh, she's dissented in just one case, Bittner. Uh, it had been Justice Jackson for a, you know a long time, tied with her, uh, but uh, Justice Jackson's solo dissent moved her down. When I guess who's the, been in the majority the least? Also, not who you think it would it w- would be. Is was it? <laughs> is it Justice Thomas? <laughs> It's Justice Alito. Uh, (laughs) He's dissented seven times. So, um, you know, I I think, though, that's probably going to change. I I, I would wager that will that will change. But both of those will change by the end of the term. All right. Well, we'll see next week what they hand down and if that sort of moves things. And listeners can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. I felt like I was in jail every day. When I was going to work, I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.